This morning in your Bible, we would invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13 and considering the same as our text uh, this morning. In your Pew Bible, you can find this on page 1,344. Uh, After uh, an interruption, uh, you might say, through some uh, special uh, texts that were selected in connection with the Advent season, we return uh, this morning uh, to the series of sermons that we began some time ago, working through the Epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. And this is categorized as what they call an ecclesiastical epistle. It's written to the church in Ephesus, but it's written especially to explain and to apply the nature of the church uh, what it is, and then also the responsibility of the church, uh, what the church uh, is to be. And so we remind ourselves of that general purpose as we begin reading the inspired Word of God from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you, Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ." to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And thus far for this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have asked uh, recently uh, and a few times to reflect upon the question of what is the reason of our existence? Not so much as individual persons, although that also is a vital question to ask and to answer, but we've asked the question, what is the reason for our existence more in connection with uh, our identity as a congregation, as a church, as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do believe that this is a most necessary question to answer very precisely. What is the, the purpose for which we exist? I believe that many, many an error in the church arises out of a wrong answer to that question. And if our answer to that question is in any way directed upon ourselves, then we will be soon led in the paths of error. But if our answer to the question, why do we exist as a church, focuses upon the person 
especially of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the person of the Father and of the Son, uh, then I believe that we will be well served as we flesh out uh, our identity and our reason for existence. I don't know if it's a a practice uh, in this area, uh, but for quite some time in the West Michigan area, there is what's known as the Parade of Homes. Uh, Both in the spring and in the fall, uh, there is this parade of homes in which uh, builders of residential homes, usually what we call high-end builders, builders of custom homes, builders of architecturally designed custom homes, they, they put their best work forward, you might say. Uh, and then with the parade of homes, these homes are opened up and the public, although you have to purchase a ticket, at least years ago you did, and you can go from home to home. Uh, and you can see uh, something of the, the skill of the craftsman, something of the design uh, of the architect. And, and the whole intention, of course, is that you might be tempted to uh, purchase such a home, or at least to contact the builder who has constructed such a home. But as you walk through the parade of homes, uh, you just kind of stand back and you admire the work that has gone into the construction of that home, and even the design that is behind the construction of that home. And I would submit to you that something similar is to be the purpose of the church. That when individuals look upon us, they pause and they go, what a great God they must serve. What a wonderful God of grace and of mercy, of knowledge and of wisdom. And not only human beings, but also the angels. The upright, the good, the holy angels, those who maintained their state of perfection. I would remind you that the angels themselves observed the existence of the church with a holy curiosity. And when they see the church as the church should be, the angels themselves say, Behold the work of our great and powerful God. This, I believe, is the main point of what Paul is seeking to communicate to the Ephesians in the section that we find in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Uh, This section resumes a prayer that the Apostle Paul is expressing for the church in Ephesus. And I'll admit that this section is full and compact. It's basically one long run-on sentence that the Apostle Paul inspired uh, writes. But I don't want to try to exhaust it in all of his details. That would be an impossibility this morning, uh, given my own limitations and given our time restraints. But rather, I want to try to focus on what I believe grammatically we'll see as the the main thrust of the passage of the Apostle Paul as we have on our theme, a description of the mystery of Christ. And we hope to unpack that by first of all looking at the idea of the mystery of Christ, and then secondly, the display of the mystery of Christ, and then thirdly, the purpose of the mystery of Christ. So the Apostle Paul in this prayer that he includes with all sorts of descriptions of theology of what God has done The Apostle Paul describes the mystery of Christ. We'll look at the idea, the display, and the purpose of that mystery. And so we hone in, you might say, and if you keep your Bible open, which I would encourage you to do, especially this morning, 
we hone in on that statement found first in verse 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And I want to spend a little bit of time seeking to clearly define what the Apostle Paul means when he uses that phrase, the mystery of Christ, because this is a phrase that the Apostle Paul frequently uses. This whole word, mystery, can be defined not something uh, that's overly mystical, something that's vague, something that's you know, some type of secret knowledge that is only given to a certain select few. But very simply, the word translated mystery has this idea. It is a truth, it is a reality that was previously hidden from humanity. So it is a heavenly reality, a, a heavenly truth, a divine truth that human beings by their own reason, apart from the divine revelation, can never come to understand. But the word mystery has this also, that that which was hidden has now been made known to a certain extent. So the mystery that Paul has in mind is an eternal, spiritual, divine truth which humanity did not previously know, comprehend, understand, but now, because God has given His divine revelation, humanity can come to know. And notice that we are already confronted with the reality that our reason is limited. Our understanding is limited. We so often, and the world especially, boast in our knowledge. Humanity has this incurable disease of parading themselves around, saying, look at what we know, look at what we have discovered, look at what we can do, look at what we can accomplish. And yet the Word of God comes, and it reminds us that in all of our knowledge, and in all of our understanding, and in all of our accomplishments, we are but mere finite, limited creatures who only see through the glass dimly. There are heavenly, eternal realities that transcend our knowledge, and yet God in His condescending goodness has come down and has made these truths and these realities known unto us. And you notice that uh, this whole phrase, mystery, is repeated numerous times in our text, and that's why I chose to hone in on it, because I believe the grammatical emphasis, you'll notice verse 3, the mystery. Verse 4, the mystery. And down in verse 9 also, the mystery. This is the golden thread that weaves throughout this complicated and lengthy passage. For one point of practical application, each one of us must settle it once and for all within our hearts that we will submit ourselves and we will rely and we will trust in divine revelation rather than mere human reason. In many ways, you can think of life as two paths. There is the path of unaided human reason and there is the path of divine revelation. 
And I would encourage you. And I would summons you. And I would plead with you. Especially those of you who are just beginning to set out in your own life as a young person. Choose the path of following divine revelation. The Word. Don't, don't heed to the arrogant claims of those who say that they have all the answers according to their own reason. Revelation over reason every single time. Now that's not to say that divine revelation is contrary to reason. But it is to say that divine revelation is superior to mere human reason. If you follow your own mind alone, you will be lost, confused. But if you submit yourself to the revelation of the Word of God, you will find peace. And so the Apostle Paul emphasizes uh, this whole idea of mystery. Well, what then exactly is the mystery? If you've kept your Bible open, I would just encourage you to cross-reference to 1 Timothy chapter 3, because here the Apostle Paul also uses this phrase, and he elaborates to some extent on what is included in the mystery. In 1 Peter 3, verse 16, he says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on, and in this early inspired hymn or song or even creed, This is the mystery, Paul says. So he gives an explanatory section. God was manifested in the flesh. Now, when did that occur? In the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, as John writes. So you want to know what the mystery of godliness is? It begins with the incarnation. And is that not a mystery? Can mere unaided human reason ever come to an understanding and a knowledge of God made flesh? The answer is no. What is the only way we come to a confident understanding of the incarnation? By the Word of God. And by the Spirit of God granting us an understanding into the Word of God. The mystery of godliness continues, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And so if we want to say what the mystery is, we must first say uh, that the mystery focuses upon the person of Jesus Christ and the redemptive work that He has definitively accomplished in His historical work. That is the mystery. The mystery is not some type of a spiritual nirvana. The mystery is not some type of internal uh, sense of wholeness and completeness. The mystery is not having the yin and the yang perfectly balanced out in one's life. The mystery is the work of Jesus Christ, especially as it was accomplished definitively upon the cross. But then by extension, the mystery also includes the fact that both Jews and Gentile partake in the benefits from that work. And now again, we need to remind ourselves, although we can never fully appreciate, uh, the, the broad separation that there was, especially in the minds of the Jews, but also in the minds of the Gentiles, the broad separation 
They viewed each other with nothing short of absolute hostility and disdain. The Jews exalted in the fact that they were the chosen people of God, that they were, according to their own estimation, inherently superior than the Gentiles. They had a a rash covenantal presumption, many of them. We are the Jews, not the Gentiles. We are the elite ones in society. We are the ones who have a special knowledge of God, and we are the ones who have a special relationship to God. On the other hand, the Gentiles had nothing but spite for the Jews, those ignorant Jews. And so there was a world of hostility between these two classes of human beings. But the mystery is, is that in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are one. One body. And this also is the mystery that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a whole host of varieties There are those who are rich and there are those who are poor. There are those who live in North America and there are those who live in South America. There are those of a variety of ethnicities. But this is the mystery, that they are one by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is displayed, as we see in our second point, This mystery has been displayed, that based upon the one work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is one body of believers. This is displayed, first of all, by apostolic proclamation. Notice again in the words of our text, if you've gone back uh, to that section, uh, verse 3, how that by revelation he made known to me, that's the Apostle Paul speaking, in his office of apostle, a unique office, and the Apostle Paul received direct divine revelation. You can think upon uh, his trip uh, to Damascus. You can also think of when he was caught up into the third heaven and saw things that could not even be uttered. So the Apostle Paul, by virtue of being an apostle, received divine revelation, and he wrote with his inspired pen. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say, uh, the revelation he, that is God, has made known to me as I have briefly written already. And what was the life purpose of the Apostle Paul? To proclaim that which he had received. And so he sought to travel the world as extensively as he could for one purpose, to proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he knew, he knew that unaided human reason would count such a message as complete foolishness. And we know that also. We know that the intelligent so-called academia of our world will laugh at us when we proclaim the message of Christ and Him crucified. We know that liberalism uh, in regards to theology uh, and uh, in regards to churches, we know that they will laugh, they'll, they'll scoff, oh sure, maybe they'll appreciate something of our zeal and something of our historical, you know, sort of sense that we do what our fathers have done, but they'll listen to our messages and they'll say, what is this guy all about? And what are these people all about? 
Still talking about the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? We know that they will laugh. So why do we then commit ourselves to this foolish message of the cross? Because we also know that it is the power of God unto salvation. That it alone can accomplish something which nothing else can accomplish. What can it accomplish? It accomplishes reconciliation. Reconciliation including the forgiveness of sins, including eternal life, including peace with God. And so the Apostle Paul, he finds himself in this context imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And no doubt that caused uh, the church in Ephesus some concern. But the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, don't be concerned. What has happened to me has happened to me because I made it my purpose to proclaim the mystery of Christ and Him crucified as the basis for the salvation of both the Jew and the Gentile. And that is the continued message uh, that the church must echo throughout history whenever we are given the opportunity. And we must continually be reminded as a congregation of the importance, of the vital importance of being Christ-centered, of being focused upon the person of Jesus Christ and His work, His redemptive work, His objective work, His historical work. Let us not try to invent some new note. And let us not try to be overly culturally relevant. Uh, let us avoid the danger of sliding into moralism, legalism, of seeking to solve the world's problems. Let us as a church be committed that as for us, we will be Christ-centered. We will glory in the foolishness of the cross with our first breath, so to speak, and with our last breath, we will proclaim this glorious message, Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners of whom we are the chief. And this display of the mystery of Christ is one that must be received also by a believing reception. Now notice in verse 2 what the Apostle Paul says, if indeed you, that is the church there in Ephesus, and the if there is not, you know, perhaps you have. It could also be translated, since you have heard. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. They had heard. They had heard about Jesus Christ and Him crucified, not just with some passing curiosity. Not in the spirit of the Athenians, and Mars Hill, who just simply sat around waiting to hear about the latest philosophical advancement. No, these Ephesian Christians, they had heard with the ear of faith. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And another practical point of application, this is why it is such a travesty to ever substitute the preaching of the Word of God for any type of human invention, any type of drama, anything that says, ah, oh, not so much preaching. Give us something new. That's the symptom of those who have tickling ears 
who no longer endure sound doctrine. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So how did these Ephesian Christians come to know about Christ? Through the preaching of the Gospel. They had heard and they had believed. And notice also, not only by the preaching, but by the reading, verse 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Read what? Well, this epistle. And so there is also the practical note of application that we must be diligent in reading. And especially in reading the Word of God. I know I don't want to spend too much time on this or, or dwell on this, but when we, when we look at the, the minutes in our days, and if we were to break them up and give certain allotments to how much time we spend in this and how much time we spend in that, where would reading and reading the Word of God fall? Would it be at the very bottom of our list? I don't have any hard statistics, but I do believe just upon reflection that we have more disposable time at our hands than our forefathers did. When you just think about the amount of work that it took our forefathers just to provide for their daily bread, I believe that we have more disposable time on our hands than they could ever have imagined. But with that opportunity also comes responsibility and accountability. Are we individuals and in a congregation that read and read the Word of God? Because this is where the mystery is revealed. You're not going to find the mystery of the redemptive work of Christ revealed apart from the Word of God. And so this message had come to the Ephesians, and they had received it in faith. And so I also call myself and yourselves to receive this message in faith. But to what purpose? Uh, that's our third point. And the purpose we find, first of all, explained in verses 9 and 10. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which is from the beginning of the ages, has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. The manifold wisdom of God. And indeed, it is the wise plan of God that provided for salvation, for redemption in the eternal decree and in the covenant of redemption, in that inter-Trinitarian agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's only the wisdom of God that could have conceived of the way of redemption and salvation. Human beings can never find their way back to God apart from the wisdom of God and apart from the way of God. And sadly, we find so many people so being spent with an attempt to find some type of peace in their own efforts, in their own imaginations, in their own wisdom. But the church is a product of divine wisdom, of eternal wisdom, of the wisdom of redemption. And you can think about this. From eternity, God in His wisdom 
found, and I don't mean that in a sense of discovery, but God found a way to glorify himself that no mere creature could have ever fathomed. And what is the way in which he glorifies himself the most? Our salvation. You can think of the angels. Those are the beings that are referred to uh, there when Paul mentions principalities and powers in the heavenlies, verse 10. Now by angels, we of course understand created beings. Angels are not eternal. Angels are not God. And in the created realm of angels, these spiritual beings, a part of them fell in rebellion following the great adversary, Satan, It's not those angels so much that are in mind. Rather, it is the angels that remained in their original state of moral integrity. It is those angels that we see so often also connected to the announcement of the work of redemption. It is those angels that surround the throne of God, basking in His infinite glory. And then when God begins to work historically, it is these angels that come forth. And you can think of the angels first coming forth, uh, standing guard over the entrance into the Garden of Eden with flaming swords. And there the angels, although they have knowledge, their knowledge is limited. Their knowledge is not the same as God. And you can think this way. Those angels that stood guarding the entrance back into the Garden of Eden, they had a certain holy curiosity. What is God going to do now? They observed creation. They observed Adam being formed in the image of God. They observed Eve being formed in the image of God. They heard God speak so that everything was good. But now, now mankind has rebelled. And now we as angels, they could have said, we must stand guard and we cannot allow Adam and Eve to come back in to eat of the tree of life. But then God's infinite wisdom begins to unfold itself in the history of redemption. And angels come again and again and again and they serve God as they make known something of His infinite wisdom. And you can fast forward it, although there are many, many other examples in the Old Testament, but you can think of the moment of the incarnation. And God dispatches angelic messengers. Go to these lowly shepherds. And proclaim a message. Go to Mary and proclaim a message. What is the message? The incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness. God is manifested in the flesh. And the angels humbly obey, but they do so seeking, as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, to peer into the things that God is doing. And so allow yourself for a moment to step back and consider that even now, angels are among us. Invisible, absolutely. Immaterial, certainly. But they are really here. And they look upon us. Created in the image of God, but fallen in our sin and rebellion but believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and redeemed. And the angels have a holy curiosity. As we we make known to them 
the glory of our God. Now just imagine for a moment in closing how this would transform our minds and the way that we conduct ourselves. If we knew that we were testifying to the angels about the glory of our God in his work of redemption. This is the purpose in part and in large part of our existence as a church. We are not going to solve humanity's problems. We are not going to end world hunger. We are not going to cause the nations to beat their swords into plowshares. We are not going to implement some type of universal agreement with biblical morality. Sure, we pray and we work for the advancement of the cause of God. This is our purpose. That even angels might look upon us in our redeemed state and say, what a wonderful God we serve. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do glorify you for your great wisdom, especially as that is revealed in the mystery of Christ, in the mysterious work of the Incarnation, in the mysterious work of his atoning sacrifice, in the mysterious work of the resurrection and of the ascension and of the current session and also of his return. We thank you, Father, that you have made known to us, mere earthly mortals, these heavenly realities. And we ask that we would receive them and appreciate them properly. And that in our activities as a congregation, uh, that by the way that we conduct ourselves in the house of God, by the way that we speak uh, as the house of God, that we might give occasion for the angels to learn something of your power and of your glory, and that we might then join with them and your church universally in praising your great and glorious name. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.